0: Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Brutus.
1: And I'm Jacob Shackman.
0: In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new.
1: Hello and welcome everyone to the Polymer Science Podcast. My name is Jacob Shekman, and today I'm here live and in person with Dr. Boran Ma. Dr. Boran? Boran? Boran. Boran? Boran. Dr. Yeah. Boran Ma. Mm-hmm. She makes me call her Dr. Bo. I tried Dr. Ma, but she's too cool for that. Thanks for being here, Dr. <laughs> Bo. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: Dr. Bo came to us after her postdoctoral work at Duke University. Who were you working there?
0: I was working with uh, Professor Kate Brinson.
1: Kate Brinson. Okay. And how did you end up here at USM?
0: Well, it's a a bit of a funny story, actually. I wasn't really looking for a job at that point, um, but I heard from my friend uh, about this opening and... At that point, I already had pretty much of uh, everything in my um, application package ready. So I was like, oh, give it a try. Why not? Um, and I came here for the interviews and I ended up really liking it here. And after some really difficult decision-making process, um, I finally decided to to come here and start my independent career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And so let's let's rewind it a bit. How did you end up finding polymers as a as a study of any kind?
0: Wow, that's that's a really good question, Jacob. I um, also a little bit random. So when I was in my undergrad, I was mostly working on experiments on metal matrix composites and alloy materials. Um, and in my senior year in college, I wanted to just like play around a little bit with different materials. And at that point, we had um, the research lab I worked in. Uh, we had a project related to sound sorption applications. And I was doing some literature review and I found that people uh, use a lot of like uh, polymer materials for that sort of applications. And I started looking into polyurethane used as like a coating material with Sound absorption um, applications. Mm-hmm.
1: And so this was this was a, a hands-on type research, or were you already doing computational? studies? No, it was
0: it was all hands-on, and I was mostly um, just really just quote-unquote playing around with it, um, and just like to see wherever it goes.
1: The best types of research. <laughs> exactly.
0: Right? Exactly. Awesome.
1: And so yeah. then you you finished your your undergraduate degree. Tell us a little bit about your PhD experience. Where did you go to school there and what did you study?
0: Yeah. So, actually, when, when I was doing my new year project, I realized that it would have been nice if, if I could have done some simulation, actually, to uh, look into how, because I was working at um, basically working on this polyurethane based polymer uh, composites with uh, some reinforcements where we use the so-called fly ash as the nanofillers in it. Um, and I thought, you know what, it, w- it would be nice if we could run some simulations and to calculate how like, um, the loadings and uh, the dispersion of the nanofillers would affect the sound absorption property of, of these materials, right? But at that point, like, I wasn't really capable of doing anything like that. But that was also what made me realize that it would it would be really helpful if we could use some modeling and simulation techniques to gain some more understanding of, of a certain material system you're uh, you're looking into. Mm-hmm. And also, like during my undergraduate time, I was able to do like a summer internship. It's it's sort of like REU that we have here. Uh, I was I was doing one of those at uh, University of Waterloo in Canada. And the professor there who was hosting me, he's someone who uh, mainly does uh, computational work, Uh, but his lab, some some students in his lab also worked on experiments. That's where I learned, wow, you can do both and you can get so much insights from um, simulation and modeling. So when I started my uh, PhD program at Northwestern University, I was uh, in the process of like choosing PhD advisors and which research group I want to join. I just specifically looked for people who worked on modeling and simulations. And I talked to some professors and ended up joining my PhD advisors group, Professor Monica vera
1: Did Did you have any, let me think about how to ask this, did you know anything about computational studies? What's the right way to say? I keep wanting to say computational chemistry. You've corrected me on that once before. I, then we can say simulations. There's modeling. So before I ask that next question, what is the difference between all these, between the terminology here?
0: I guess overall you can use competen- computational research okay. as the umbrella term. Because mm-hmm. when you say computational chemistry, that's, uh, that limits you to the chemistry field. Then, like you know, out of modeling and simulation, there's a lot of physics in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess computational research would be would be a good term for okay. that.
1: Okay, so yeah. then back to the original question I wanted to ask: What did you know about computational research at the time that you decided? I think I would like to do this more.
0: Honestly, I didn't know much about it. I mean, I just i I knew of it. I knew the concept. And it sounded really cool to me, (laughs) but I had no idea like how much uh, learning would it would take for someone to really get up to speed or get to a get to a a level where you're comfortable with uh, running your own simulations, um, Mm -hmm. developing your own models, and whatnot. I didn't really have a whole lot of idea.
1: What what what's that learning curve like? Right? What what were the first couple of steps that you had to take to, to jump the curve and say to yourself okay I I can do this now now let me get my PhD in this (laughs) well
0: the learning curve the learning curve was very steep um I mean just like really anything else at the beginning it's always a steep learning curve Uh, but it's also like really rewarding right Mm -hmm. because you're learning something new and just that excitement seeing yourself um grow more and more every day that's just that's a great feeling um so the way i started off was um because i knew that um uh, programming is is a is a pretty big part in uh, like modeling and simulation this com- uh, computational research work so and in college i took a course on c in my sophomore year, and I didn't really do much with it ever since. So when I first started grad school, I just had to I just had to like sort of teach myself some basic programming language a little bit. And I started with Python, which is actually a great language for beginners to learn. It's very intuitive, not super hard to learn. And once I got like quite comfortable with Python, I started um, also just getting into learning about what molecular modeling is all about. That's what I knew at the point that that's what I'm going to need for my um, uh, graduate work, for my mm-hmm. PhD study.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's that's the type of work you did for your PhD studies. And that's what you're going to be doing now also is computational modding, modeling in materials science. Is that how you put it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Can we get a few examples of uh, the ideas that you brought, say, during your interview and the directions that you're going to take with your lab now?
0: Okay, so so I I feel like to answer this, I'll have to um, give you a little bit of information on what I did for my postdoc work yeah, as well. Yeah, let's yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so after I graduated from Northwestern, mm-hmm. I went to uh, Duke University and started working with Professor Kate Brinson. and um, And at the point, I wanted to... Um, expand my like toolbox a little bit after my PhD so I wanted to learn about some some new modeling techniques which is something I didn't do during my PhD time so I started learning finite element analysis during my uh, postdoc work and also I like, got into a little bit data-driven uh, meta-analysis of like polymer materials
1: what what is the difference between finite element analysis and And meta-analysis? Is that what the other one was?
0: Data-driven meta-analysis. Data-driven meta-analysis. Yeah, Yeah, what's that mean? (laughs) So finite element analysis is basically like comparing to molecular modeling that I did in my PG time is is a different modeling technique that looks at slightly different length scale of your system. And data-driven meta-analysis is more like... um, machine learning aided uh, research that you can, uh, you can basically look at different, different lens skills. So it's essentially a different technique. Um, so for me, it was more like learning more skills. So I'll have the capability of doing like a range of things once I start my independent research career. Um, yeah. So with, with all those uh, skills that I, I was able to learn uh, for my, Future research from my research lab, um, I would I would love to apply these modeling techniques into applications like energy and sustainability. Those are just something that I've always been passionate about, and I think it would be it would be really nice to be able to apply what what we've learned um, throughout the, uh, along the way to the issues that we we care mm-hmm. about. Yeah,
1: is there a way that that you can elaborate on that s- someone is already sort of using computational modeling to address issues in the energy sector or or green energy?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, for example, you can you can use uh, molecular modeling to look at, say, the electrolyte materials for for your uh, ion batteries. Or use molecular modeling to study fuel cell membranes.
1: Mm-hmm. What are they looking at? Say when, when we're studying these ion batteries or the fuel cell membranes, let's go with the let's go with the fuel cell membrane because I like membrane materials. Yeah. Um, what would we be investigating in this fuel cell simulation?
0: Yeah, yeah. So with molecular modeling, you would be looking at the molecular level. Um, details um, of of your material. So, for example, for fuel cell applications, you would you would focus a lot on like the transport properties of your material, right? And the molecular modeling technique just uh, gives you that capability of
1: what information needs to be provided to the computer to model something like that.
0: So it depends on. depends on what materials you're studying. I I try to think of of it the way as just like synthesis in a lab, in a wet lab, right? You're basically synthesizing some polymer materials on your computer first. And you tell your computer, you tell your model what kind of um, chemical structures, depending on what kind of um, details you can go into. Sometimes with like atomistic level simulation, you can You can model, you can put each individual atom into your model. And sometimes um, if you want to save some uh, computing time to look at more more polymer chains, you would go to a more uh, coarse-grained model where you would basically group some atoms, um, sometimes even some monomers, into one bead in your simulation. That's the coarse-grained beads, mm-hmm. and that way you get to look at uh, relatively longer polymer chains and uh, larger, relatively larger number of chains in your in your know, simulation. Um, but by doing that, uh, comparing to the atomistic models, you lose a little bit of the um, atomistic detail of your of your um, polymers.
1: So this is, I'm in my head, I'm equating it to like a, a quick print versus high quality print.
0: Yeah, you can think of it that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so now we've synthesized our uh, molecules, our polymers, on our computer. So uh, we've we've got the simulation model going on, and then we tell the the computer how how each of those atom or bead would interact with each other. Uh, what's the potential energy going on? Because um, we can we can easily think of like different, there's going to be different interaction between different atoms, right? Like the interaction between a carbon atom and an oxygen atom is going to be different from the the interaction between a carbon and carbon atom. Mm -hmm. Um, So we tell all of those information to the computer and with uh, molecular dynamics simulations, it'll basically predict where those atoms those beads would go so it's like a quote unquote evolution of your of your atoms or beads
1: sure yeah. the 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 evolution of their movement mm-hmm. and interactions exactly i mean again going back to the question of what what information do we give to the computer I, that also and you you've mentioned it sort of depends on the material what what other what atoms are involved what chemical interactions might be happening what are we using? What software are we using on the computer that already knows some subset of information that like I don't know the bonding energy of a typical hydrogen bond? How do I put my polymer into this software and have it account for those types of intermolecular interactions already?
0: Yeah, so especially for uh, molecular dynamic simulations, there are a lot of free and open source softwares available. And uh, for example, there's Lamps, Girl Max, Humdi Blue, just to name a few. And each of these softwares, they have um, very well maintained documentation on their websites. And you can you can look it up and learn about the syntax from from their websites, um, just which will tell you how, how you can run your simulations with with their um, software. Mm-hmm. And um, so the interactions we just talked about between the um, atoms and beads and whatnot, uh, and also like the bond potential. Sometimes so there's angle potential, dihedral potential, depending on how much um, of the detail you you want to um, apply in your mm-hmm. in your model, right? And so those those information. So it's basically those are um, what we call like force field in your in our uh, MD simulations, okay. molecular dynamics yeah. simulations. Um, and all of those softwares um, give you options to set those uh, force field parameters.
1: You know, I, I'm realizing that I'm asking a lot of questions that uh, I've asked the other grad students for this episode. So I, I mentioned to Dr. Bo that I went around our department to speak with other graduate students about computational modeling and research. Specifically, I asked, what do they know already? What would they like to know? And how do they think computational modeling and research can be useful to their own graduate studies? So here's what some of these students had to say regarding what they already know.
0: Just that it exists. My only exposure to it was when we were at APS and we were like seeing a bunch of computational presentations. That's about it. Specific to materials science and engineering, I'm actually not too familiar with it.
1: Not a lot. I know that it happens. That's about
0: it. Honestly, not, not a ton. Uh, you know, we, We've done a good bit of modeling and research in the group historically, but I know it's a very valuable tool and can kind of bolster a lot of our experimental findings.
1: The folks you just heard from now were Sarah Valdez, Evan Stacey, Dr. Dana Pinson. Congrats, Dana. And Levi Hamernick, in that order. Thank you folks so much for being a part of this episode. Now back to the show. Based on... The question of what do you know to and the answers that you've heard, what is your just first first reaction to having heard those answers?
0: Yeah, I think um, i was I was not surprised by the responses that we got from from some of our students because if you if you just look at the research community um, I mean especially specifically polymer science research community, um, there are just so many more experimental researchers than computational researchers. And um, if you look at the work being published out there, there's also just more on um, experimental work than, than those on computational work. So, so I'm not surprised that um, people might not be super familiar with what it really is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay, and then the next question is, was what would you like to know about computational modeling and research? And this is what they had to say.
0: I guess what kind of programs they use to code everything. And like, I have no idea what kind of software they use. How do they actually do the research? Starting from the ground up, you know, I mean, I'm interested to see what the specific parameters you would look at in analyzing a data set for whether the X application, what would you need to plug in there? Because honestly, I'm not familiar with it at all. I don't even know what they're looking at.
1: More about how it's done. I have no idea how much computer knowledge you need to have. And then more about
0: the assumptions that go into making the data.
1: This is something I've been thinking about for a while now. My work's in dynamic chemistry. is understanding dynamic covalent bond exchange.
0: So I think computational stuff is, is a really interesting space for kind of teasing out collision frequency and the, the kinetics of some of these dynamic exchanges.
1: Okay, so... First reaction to this second set of answers.
0: Yeah. So the second question what, to them what was, "What would yeah, you like to what know?" Would you like to know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I was first first reaction. I was definitely very encouraged to hear the answers because our students are very you know interested in learning more about just computational research in general.
1: Well, have you been under the impression that? People are not very interested.
0: No, 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 not at all. Um, I mean, my I think my impression so far has been mostly from like my interaction with first year students, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some some of them are definitely interested. Some of them are a little bit in, intimidated by it because it's you know it's a new skill for them. So it's like. There is this, like, a lot of uncertainty. There's the learning curve that we've talked about earlier. Um, so it could be a little scary at first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it's, it sounded like the the students that you've interviewed, um, some of them even already had a little bit of learning or a little bit of like, uh, experience with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I talked to more students than, than we heard just now. Um, the people I don't like, I just cut them right out. Of course, of course, but no, they, um, it seemed like everyone I spoke with, regardless of, of how much experience we had, I, I, there was no one I spoke with that, that, you know, is a a computational researcher. So it was all very limited knowledge, but there were a lot of similar questions regarding what they would like to know. Like we talked about um, someone was wondering, you know, about the software that gets involved. And we talked about that earlier and just not knowing where where do I start? I, I was actually, I was speaking with uh, Mustafa Zago in, in Dr. Nazarenko's group. And that was his question. He was, I have no idea where I would even start. So let's go with that, right? If if I wanted to op- open up YouTube or open a book tomorrow, what book am I going to read? Or what website should I go find to start learning Python maybe, right? Is, is learning Python or a relevant language, the proper first step, what would you say to someone to start with here?
0: Yeah, of course. I would say for someone who has, let's say, zero programming background, I would suggest start with learning a little bit of Python first, just to get comfortable with that way of thinking and then they can move on to learning more about molecular modeling in general and uh, there's this book called understanding molecular Simulation, from algorithms to applications by frankel and smith and it's it's one of my favorite books on on this topic and uh, from this book you can learn just some like basic concepts uh, underlying and then i would suggest look into uh, some of the free and open source softwares that we talked about lamps girl max uh, Humdi blue and just start with their um, the examples they they, they have in, in their documentation pages mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah these softwares are very good at uh, giving you examples and it's it's a it's a really good learning approach just learning by doing right yeah. following those examples and then after understanding those examples you can Um, do some tweaks to it, and then you can apply the same thing to to whatever material system you're interested in looking at. Okay.
1: The final question I asked the grad students was, how can computational modeling and research help you with your own projects in grad school?
0: For mine, it would be interesting because specifically we're trying to understand behaviors of polymers on a single molecule level and being able to compare simulation to what we're actually observing would help to prove that what we're doing could be working specifically there is a ton of ai machine learning models that you can apply that gauges ligand binding to extracellular surface receptors i
1: think it could be really helpful especially like in the scouting phases where i'm just trying to figure out how to design my research to kind of point me in directions like that yeah i think you know kind of just understanding there's, there's a big misconception about you know chain dynamics versus activation energy of these bond exchanges. So getting these these materials to collide and, and kind of actually being able to visualize this for these bond exchanges would be
0: really interesting.
1: Okay, so do do those sound like reasonable computational studies from from of course the limited information provided, but at the surface level, are those normal goals to try and reach?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because from, um, from molecular dynamic simulations, we can get structure-property relationship. For example, like how some of the composition um, in your polymer materials would affect the properties of those polymer materials. Mm-hmm. Like it could be mechanical properties, could be glass transition temperature, could be, um, like we mentioned before, some transport properties, which depends on whatever applications you're interested in, right? And uh, that, that'll all um, be affected if you change say some volume fraction if you change the the chemical structure of some functional group if you change like if there's any like external field you're applying to that'll all affect the property and we can get those answers from molecular modeling and yeah and uh, AI, machine learning these are um, some these are like really um, not new anymore. But recent years, uh, a lot of researchers started incorporating machine learning and AI techniques into their research, where you can uh, basically train some machine learning models to find the correlation between different variables. And uh, yeah, these are all just some very powerful tools.
1: When we talk about using uh, machine learning, what... Do I have to teach a machine how to learn to use that, or is there somewhere where I submit information to some cluster of servers where this learning machine exists?
0: So the majority of the research going on in the material science field, we are mostly looking at existing machine learning models. Um, so those are those are like developed by comp- uh, computer scientists who know a whole lot more about algorithm uh, than than material scientists mm-hmm. uh, in general. Very very few, very few of the. Uh, mm, I mean, some 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 research still in the in the material science field um, are probably focused more on like getting better algorithm for their own uh, research. But a lot of them, you already have these existing tools that mm-hmm. you can you can apply to your own research. So it's the same as like taking advantage of those free and open source softwares to to do your molecular simulations. You you already have a lot of tools available to you that you can you can use and apply to your to your own research.
1: So I, I'm gonna I I have a question that is both uh, is really to have a, another specific example of of where to start and what parameters, but it's also selfish because it's it would help me in my own research.
0: Yeah.
1: I <clears throat> I need to determine through simulation the glass transition temperature of a polymer network. And I know everything that's going to be in that network and the general connectivity that it's going to have. And I know what finite changes I would like to make Where do I start again when it comes to trying to simulate an answer for this TG determination, right? So then I guess I'll try and answer myself and you help me fill in the gaps, essentially, based on what we've talked about, right? So I suppose my first step might be to go find one of these open source softwares, Mm -hmm. teach myself how to use it, given its examples and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And let's say then I understand at this point the software interface what is this going to be asking me to input so that it can tell me a glass transition temperature? And as far as the, the way I understand it, apparently I need to look at thermal expansion at different temperatures of an, of the network that I put into the computer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This all tracks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I'm trying to really just pull up this paper that could help you. Oh. Um, but uh are we gonna put this in the in the in the podcast as well or this is more about like more like a casual conversation between you and I?
1: Depends on how the conversation goes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm yeah, it's just um I was just looking at um looking online 'cause um cause I wanna be accurate if, uh-huh, if we uh-huh. if we publish this. Um, so I want to, I want to make sure that I actually, that I'm actually giving you the the right information. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now I think I'm good to go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I can give you the right information for sure now.
1: Okay. (laughs) So the, the property I'm trying to determine is the glass transition temperature of a network that I've made a bajillion times by hand. And I know the temperature that it should be, but now I want to have a computer tell me what it thinks the temperature should be and see that it's going to be the same based on what this conversation so far, I, my, all I can think to do is I would go on Google, look up open source programs for computational modeling research, teach myself how to use one. And that's all I got. Right. I I don't know what the interface is like, what information it's going to be asking me for to get this specific property what do you how you help me fill that in what, what would you do how what would you tell me to do yeah
0: so we we mentioned before how you can quote unquote synthesize mm-hmm. your material in, on, on your computer in for your model right so now let's say um jacob you've already built this polymer network in your model right and um you give it the information about the chemical structure So the computer knows what kind of interactions between um, different atoms, different beads, um, are going on in your your system. So basically, if you you want to measure the glass transition temperature of your material, what you would do in your simulation is you would increase the temperature. Uh, You would have a range of temperature values. And then at different temperature at different temperature values, you would also measure the density of your of your system, mm-hmm. and essentially, with increasing temperature, what we would see is there will be um, two regimes. Different, um, the overall trend that of the density with increasing temperature is it's gonna it's gonna decrease, mm-hmm. and then there's gonna be a point. Um, a temperature value that would uh, basically marks the separation of the two regimes, and that will be your glass transition temperature. So the,
1: that point would be the the intersection of those two slopes, mm-hmm. and that's my Tg.
0: Exactly. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And I assume if you change some of the um, details in your polymer networks, um, say the crosslink density. Or like if you uh, if you add some functional groups here and there, or like how flexible, or like uh, yeah, how flexible your polymer chains are, mm-hmm. that would affect your TG, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can basically run the simulations following the same procedure, and it'll tell you how the glass transition temperature changes with whatever the parameters change, the, the parameters that we just talked sure. about.
1: Now, something that keeps a question that keeps popping up for me is what does synthesizing our network look like for doing it on the computer, right? Because right now, all I can envision is, say, opening up ChemDraw, drawing whatever structures I need, and then uh, somehow pass it along to the other bit of software. What is that how it's done?
0: It uh, pretty much, I mean, there are softwares like uh, Avogadro that y- where you can draw the chemical structures, and then you can pass on that model into your uh, MD simulations.
1: Okay, so it, it really is. It's pretty straightforward when it comes to drawing up structures, right? There's there's I'm not you know, typing in a code that represents benzene.
0: You can do that. You can also oh, do that. Okay. But there, there, those are just like different two different ways to do the same thing. Yeah. You can do you can do it with the help of some softwares that has uh, more user friendly interface, um, and you can also do it the quote unquote hardcore way, mm-hmm. where you would uh, write a code to write a code to generate the data file that yeah. you you would need for for the as the input.
1: Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. There's. There are endless questions (laughs) for people like me who don't really have any experience with this.
0: Yeah, Um, but but that's that's great. I I hope that um, helps a little bit.
1: One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Now I kind of I I can't wait to get that paper. Um, Hi,
0: yeah, that's great.
1: I and I have one. I there's a couple I wrote. Really, I just want to ask one of these before, because so we want to talk a bit um, about Hattiesburg and comedy. But my last question for now on computational modeling and research is what are the, the limitations for that we have that uh, we just can't get by yet?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are still a lot of limitations, right? If it's this perfect thing, we don't need to do any experiments anymore. So some of the limitations are, for example, the first one is it's depending on how much atomistic details you want to get into. Um, and sometimes people even want to... Uh, take into account like some quantum mechanics effect. So there's going to be very computational, expensive, very time consuming to, to just like do one calculation. That's just the computing resource limitation in that, in that sense. Um, and different ways to like sort of get around it, get, get around this is to um, coarse graining your model. So that way you can model longer chains and a larger number of chains. So that's one limitation. But then, with the coarse grain modeling, because you lost some atomistic details, it doesn't give you very precise predictions. Um, so there's all, like a there's going to be that trade-off between precision and the e- competition expense. Mm-hmm. So that's one limitation. And uh, the other one comes from the the Course grain modeling, where it's not it's not 100% precise. So a lot of times you can't expect your simulation results to match the exact value that you would measure from from experiments. For example, it's going to be very challenging to get the exact glass transition temperature just from simulation alone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, people get is more of a qualitative match between simulation and experiments rather than a quantitative match. So for example, it's, um, simulations would be able to give you the right trend. Just Let's just use your, use your question as an example here, mm-hmm. right? Like for the gas transfer temperature, even though simulations might not be able to give you the exact TG values, but it'll tell you how by changing some of the compositional parameters of your Apollo network will change it's TG values.
1: Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Where if in this polymer network, uh, if we know by experiments that adding component B and C will increase TG, then we do the same thing in the simulation. It might not increase by the same number, but we'll still see these increases.
0: Exactly. Perfect.
1: Okay. That's amazing. And again, I feel like we can keep talking about this forever, but we are our limitations, our time in content. We want to talk about Hattiesburg and being in comedy. I, didn't, I forgot to mention this, that this in the beginning. Dr. Bo is a stand-up comedian. The first time that I ever saw Dr. Bo, she was on stage. I didn't know that she had just interviewed for USM. And b- my stomach hurt laughing. I think I talked to you about this when I first met you at, at the brewery. I felt like a fangirl when I met you. I was like, oh my God, there's Bo. Do- there's I was dying of laughter. It was like you came out first talking about how you had gone hiking, and immediately you were like, "Which is weird, right? We're in Hattiesburg. Where did I go hiking?"
0: So you're you're too nice. This is
1: it was hilarious. So let's talk a bit about that first. When did comedy start for you? And tell me a little bit about the comedy scene in Hattiesburg.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I started doing comedy just a couple months before I graduated from. from Northwestern so um at that point I was I was like pretty jaded with (laughs) with writing my dissertation and everything and I also knew that I was gonna leave Chicago after this so I wanted to just you know sort of take advantage of what the city has to offer and I know like I know that um Chicago has such a great comedy scene um so I I took uh an eight-week class on stand-up comedy at the Second City. And I just ended up really loving it. And um I just kept doing it, especially after I moved to to Durham, North wow. Carolina. I was uh I was doing comedy quite a lot in my free time. Um I would go to open mics, um, and uh later on I started getting booked on showcases. Um during the during the weekends and sometimes even some weekday nights, uh, I would just like do comedy and uh, hang out with my comedian friends that I that I got to meet through comedy, and it's been such such a rewarding experience as well. And uh, that really uh, also I want to bring up this other point of like the importance of having one or two hobbies outside of school um, just for the sake of your mental health is <laughs> so good. Yeah. It's so helpful. And also it just like helps you become a more like well-rounded person in general. For sure. Yeah, For sure. Yeah. Uh, um, keep, no, no, keep going yeah, yeah. keep on. Hed- Hattiesburg comedy scene. Right. So, um, so yeah, so actually when I, when I was um, interviewing, I was, I was quite pleasantly surprised to find out that Hattiesburg um, does have a small, comedy scene the second time i visited um i actually got to open for sean Patton, who who happened to have have a showcase i think that's the show that i was at Yeah. yeah 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 it was it was it was a really fun experience also just like interacting with some of the local comedians here um and i haven't really been able to do a whole lot since i started my um uh, whole time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> since i started my full-time job here it's it's been it's been a lot but uh in the near future once once i like more uh get the groove of of everything i want to still like ease back into mm-hmm. comedy again because it's it's just uh it's it's become a big part a big part of my life now yeah, yeah.
1: what does what does getting back into it look like like i i imagine every comedian has some small notepad with them at all times to yeah. write. Do you have a little something
0: to write I, ideas yeah. and everything? I have my comedy notebook. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it is true. Yeah, gotta write down those funny ideas. <laughs> so just even
1: so during these past few months, you mentioned it. You're started a job as a as academic researcher. You're going to be <laughs> a professor essentially, right?
0: It's a real job now. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: It takes a long a lot of your time. Absolutely. So do you find that? Are you just not able to, to do that as much too? Is that part of not being in comedy as much as you like, like not even considering the ideas or is it more that you're still writing down a lot of stuff? You just have no time to put it together into a, a joke that you would tell on stage.
0: Um, A little bit of both actually, because, because this new job has been really keeping me really busy and um, I just don't really have a whole lot of free time outside of work or at least, um, since I've only been here for three months and, uh, there's just like so much to learn almost every single day. I mean, it's both really exciting, but also <laughs> exhausting <laughs> sure. in a way. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so I just, uh, naturally don't have that much time to like actually gather the, um, don't have that much time and also the energy to actually go to an open mic uh, physically, mm-hmm. and also just um, I feel like I also don't have enough time to write down some some bits or jokes anymore. Which which sh- I mean. Well, I want no. I want to answer this in a little bit different way. I, I also feel like I sort of um, because I'm so focused on this new job, I also just limited myself to my observations, um, if that makes sense. No. I'll yeah. Go elaborate on that. Yeah, because my comedy style is a lot of like ob- observational comedy. Um, so I feel like because I'm so focused. Um, like on this new job, I'm learning everything to get, get the job done. Um, I don't pay enough attention outside of work, at least in the past three months, and that's something I wanna I wanna work on and I wanna change a little bit, just to you know, um, pay more attention when I go places mm-hmm. the thing is i don't go to enough places outside of work <laughs> uh, i mean i still go grocery shopping which is <laughs> great i'm i'm still <laughs> still surviving right and i did notice uh this one time when i went to sam's club i saw this so bizarre thing that just so mind-blowing to someone like me um you know first time living in the deep south um which which was Someone
1: had a gun. No, no. That was the the weird thing that continued. Fortunately, no, not (laughs) that. But
0: uh, that'll be also very shocking. But but what I saw at Sam's Club that day was uh, pickled pig feet. Oh, oh, gross. Maybe um,
1: it sounds gross. (laughs) And
0: pickled sausage. And I was just like, uh, like, I was so shocked by that. I was like, who would eat that and it's like it's like just as if like the sodium in sausage is not enough to kill you like hey let's pickle them let's let's double let's triple the sodium content ooh, and that's... and like the color is so gross as well it's pink ooh yeah ooh. why why is this a thing maybe we shouldn't be sharing this if anyone with... is listening and you eat these
1: we're i'm sorry we don't mean to yuck your yum but Tell us what's up with that. Why is that a yum in the first place?
0: And you know what? It's pickle it's what 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 is it called? What's it what does it say on the package? It's something like pickle snacks, pickled snacks or something. I was like, wow, that's actually a snack? That's what people snack on. I thought I knew what snacks were. <laughs> but no, <laughs> apparently not.
1: Not down here. That's
0: that's
1: <laughs> something. Pickled pickles in general, I think, are pickled items down here, I think, are more popular than at least elsewhere other regions in the United States I, I don't know I don't know that I've traveled enough quite to say that but I just haven't seen it anywhere else like a a gas station pickle is a common road snack for folks I've met down here
0: I mean hey like I I have no problem with of pickles course, yeah. right like <laughs> I mean I I just sure, if it was just a
1: regular pickle that's fine okay
0: <laughs> actually I just had some um Pickled Brussels sprouts and pickled okra the other day, and they, those were both really good.
1: The, was this by suggestion of someone from the south?
0: No, okay. I went to oh. I went to this event, and they had they had those locally yeah yeah oh so uh, yeah it
1: was a southern thing then yeah it was a southern thing
0: but it's good but like pickled sausage or pig feet that's that's where i draw the line it's just (laughs) (laughs) not gonna happen that's too much (laughs) (laughs) but also because i'm vegetarian so
1: okay that also (laughs) makes a difference so you're not drawing the line because of what their pickled feet and sausage it's because you don't eat meat
0: no i feel like if even if i ate me i still i still would draw the line there. okay
1: okay that's fair That's fair. um shoot i had a clear question but um that was pretty hilarious and that uh, that brought me from it it's also it's almost 3 30 how are you doing on time right now Ooh. yeah yeah
0: oh i'm good i don't have anything um until four Okay. It's okay. the office hour. I,
1: I'm not going to try and take the yeah. whole rest half yeah, yeah, yeah. hour or anything.
0: No. I just. Um. But I'm just, ha- I'm just having such a good awesome. time good. with I'm you. Glad. So this is I'm I'm glad.
1: Excellent. Loving awesome. <laughs> um, well, then, oh, awesome. Okay. Let me try and remember. No, we were
0: talking about observation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, but there and then. But I mean, so that was sort of like the observation that I was, one observation I will still be able to get in through grocery shopping. But I'm just hoping that. Um, in the near future, once I'm more like settled in, I will be able to observe a little more, sure. pay more attention yeah. in, in life outside of work. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, okay, I remembered the two things. One of them, my, my relatable story of uh, sort of welcome to grocery shopping in the South and why <laughs> there was maybe a gun thing. No one pulled a gun or anything, but I was, you know, trying to get milk or something. I was in the dairy section. There's another gentleman perusing through and i see he's got a pistol on his hip and i thought wow like i get i'm from california that's just so foreign to me i don't yeah whatever he's not shooting anybody but he's picking out orange juice i I was like okay that's that's your thing yeah and again yeah for those listening (laughs) this is just a foreign thing to me it was a welcome to the south moment never have i ever seen yeah someone with a gun on their hip picking out orange juice
0: i mean you can do both i guess. Yeah, yeah, you can.
1: yeah, <laughs> certainly
0: you can, you can be both a tough person and a family person. Right? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. No, no,
1: no, no. no. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, uh, folks, this is, I just want you to know there's no commentary or opinion on guns being brought in here. And I'm currently thinking about what I'm gonna um, going to delete. But going back to um, the observations uh, aspect of, of how that goes into comedy are because you haven't really had time to do th- things in life other than work related or surviving and getting food <laughs> um when are you making taking notes of things that are happening in in this building around the school sort of that you think will eventually end up as jokes on stage
0: that's <laughs> Dangerous. That, that's that... a very interesting way of asking. Are you gonna make fun of your colleagues later on?
1: <laughs> that's I want no, that's not what I was asking. no, but no I just kidding yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm just teasing. I know, I know. But um but yeah, oh heck yeah, I make fun of my colleagues all the time. My bosses too. No, just kidding. <laughs> that was that was well, me kidding. Only but, to their face. Uh, yeah, only no, no, also behind their backs. So. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, not true. well, I feel like I feel like that's the, that's the thing. I feel like at least right now i'm I'm treating this job very seriously, so I haven't really I haven't really expanded my creativity in a in a, in a comedy sense into work yet. Um, I mean, I do enjoy my conversations with my colleagues and students, just like. Like uh, about about life in general, right, outside of work. But that's again, that's really outside of work. I feel like I've been keeping work pretty serious, Um, but that might change in the future. But I hope in in a good way. I mean, for example, I've done this before when I was uh, in North Carolina, both at um, Duke and UNC Chapel Hill. This this idea of uh, integrating comedy writing into science communications. Um, I've, I've run like two different sort of like workshops um, at those universities uh, before, and I'm hoping to continue doing the same thing here at USM. And I think it's just such a great way to combine these two worlds that I'm like, these two things that I'm like super passionate about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's a nice way to introduce something new to, to our students as well. Um, so, yeah, so I guess not necessarily talking about, like, jokes about uh, colleagues or students or work in general on stage, but more about, like, integrating or combining these, uh, these two, two stuff together. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: What, what, I was wondering if you, if there was any opportunity that you might take to, I wasn't quite sure what to call, it, like a, a stand up workshop, essentially. But what, what do these workshops look like? Uh, that you're describing, where you're you're educating on how to combine comedy and science communications.
0: Yeah, well, so the workshop is actually on science communication. It's not um, really on stand-up comedy. It's more about trying to integrate some of the like comedy writing skills into um, science communication in general. Mm-hmm. My long-term vision for this is at least once um, I've got my research group. Uh, up and running Um, and as soon as we start publishing I would like I would love to um, have one or two short videos for explaining what we've done in this publication in in a way in the language that the general public a lay person will be able to understand like why this project is important what kind of impact would this generate mm-hmm. in whatever application that we're um, we're aiming for? And then we're gonna like post those videos on our on our website as as a good education sort of thing. And I, I'm and I'm hoping that through through this process, our students will will um, just like enjoy making these videos as well.
1: Definitely. I, have you seen yet one of the, the first year welcome videos? Probably, I guess not. not.
0: I have not. Oh, no. man.
1: You're in for a treat this fall.
0: Oh, really? It's, uh, yeah, it's happening? Yeah.
1: Oh, every year. Every year. It's tradition. The, oh, really? The, yep. The, um, the first year class at, after their first year, the semester after their first year, we have a welcome back seminar. And at the end of that seminar, they'll play, th- there will be a couple of them will emcee and then they'll play skits, basically, videos that they've recorded Based on whatever whatever has come up throughout the year, I think for someone, one of them did a f- they did a group a fashion show sort of, right? And then they each printed out a, a some of my professor's face. Oh, that's the other thing. All of them are to essentially roast the professors. That's
0: perfect. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's oh, it's a great time.
0: That's great. Yeah. Um, like right before I left the Triangle area, some of my. Comedian friends did this roast for me, just as a send-off gift. That was awesome. Yeah, it was really nice.
1: Are you planning on or hoping to do any? Um, I don't know, seminar stand-up something, or maybe like grad student stand-up. Are you going? You going to set anything up like that? Get comedy into polymer science at U.S.M.
0: Well, um, aside from the science communication workshop thing that we just talked about, I've actually been sort of um, thinking about this other idea, which I did a short test run at UNC Chapel Hill before, but it's about using storytelling as a coping mechanism mm-hmm. dealing with rejections. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, because yeah. cause, like in, in academia, we, we're we faced with rejections a whole lot of times, for like application for scholarship fellowship. Um, Trying to publish a paper and uh, submitting uh, a grant proposal, like we get rejected all the time, and I feel like people don't talk about it enough. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been thinking about maybe starting like some sort of um, some sort of event where people can share with other participants in in an open and safe and inclu- inclusive environment. Just um, about their, like, experience dealing with rejection. Um, and I, I think there's, like, storytelling can, can, help, can help figure out that narrative a lot. That could be really helpful.
1: Do you mean, do you mean just, like, um, tell any story, sort of? Or, like, essentially having students go through the process of, of building a story of, of their interest? Or is this all related to rejection?
0: Well, I think talking about rejection could be a good starting point. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, it depends on how things go and how how the participants want to where they want to take this, right? We could we could start talking about other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Then, but then you got to be you got to be a little careful cuz you don't you don't want this to be like sort of like a quote-unquote group therapy yeah, section. <laughs> I mean, it could be. It could It could be really therapeutic. It could be really wholesome, right? Like just um, uplifting each other and whatnot. <laughs> but, but yeah, but I want to start with maybe like just uh, like creating this open and safe space where you can talk about rejections. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I just want to roast my friends.
0: I mean, that's that's great. We can do that too. And sometimes you just need to like blow off some steam, right? With <laughs> that's the best yeah. way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll we'll get you a, we'll get you a platform to do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, literally speaking, this time. <laughs> um, okay, I I'm out of questions for that. I had thought of the essentially ahead of time. Was there anything you wanted to discuss about Hattiesburg specifically?
0: Well, I feel like I haven't really gotten the chance to explore to explore Hattiesburg that much yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, that'll that'll be changed in the near future, especially once the semester is over. um, So I don't have to deal with the the pressure with teaching. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, because teaching has been a lot just uh, for this first semester.
1: Okay, then, what advice do you have for students? who are sort of on, on the fence right now, maybe they're a first year in grad school or they're going to go to grad school soon and they're trying to decide, I think I want to do something with computational modeling. What advice do you have for these students to help them make that decision?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, definitely look into it and um, just just to see how powerful a lot of the computational tools are. And I mean, starting something new or learning something new can be so intimidating. I get it. I've been there, but I learned it. So, so can you? Yeah. Heck yeah. yeah. I, I
1: still, even after this conversation though, when you say, look into it, try and find out how, how these tools have been used and how powerful they are. Even that task isn't as straightforward as i i would think right like again i'm putting myself in in this honestly in my own shoes and i'm trying to think all right well if that is my goal to look into how powerful these are i don't exactly know what i would search yet right like literally again just go on google and type in most advanced computer simulation you know
0: I probably wouldn't start that way. I would actually um, I would actually say go to Google Scholar and mm-hmm. um, type in whatever materials you're working on or whatever materials you're interested in, say PMMA or polystyrene, whatnot. And type in that word and then type in maybe a property you're interested in, like glass transition temperature we, we just gotcha. talked about. and then. Type in molecular modeling, and that'll that'll probably lead you to some papers, uh-huh. and you you'll probably be able to dig in a little bit. And also, a lot of the publications these days um, they have they have um, so they have results from both experimental and computational sides. Um, so you can just really read, say, one paper, and you can learn how those researchers used computational research. To help their 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 whole study to help them interpret their experimental results and okay. observations, and that 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 would be that would be a good way to start. And also, just um, after reading a couple of papers, you would probably get a sense of like if this is something that you would love to look into a little bit more. And I would really just encourage you to talk to more people who actually do computational research and. Talk to them and see how they got into this research. Like the one of the first questions you asked me, right? Like how I got into computational research. I mean, actually, yesterday I was talking to our seminar speaker, Professor Rob Riegelman from University of Pennsylvania. He told me about uh, this student of his. It was one of, one of his first students. And this student came in with zero to... Very little knowledge about computational research, but after talking to Rob, he got really excited about it, and he joined his group and started doing computational work. And after he graduated, I think um, he's now a data scientist somewhere. And um, it's just yeah, it could be it could be like really rewarding. It's like something you something new that you learn, some new skills you would be able to get by the end of uh, your PhD program, and that skill might help you open a whole lot of a whole lot more doors mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah it it definitely seems like the peers I've had who've gone through significant experience in in computational um, they do they have a, a many doors open for them that are far removed from the specific research that they did right it doesn't those some of them you know don't even use the same coding language anymore sort of thing so I, I can see how that branches out elsewhere. So that's really awesome to open up those opportunities.
0: Yeah, and especially uh, sorry I cut you off. No, again. no, 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 no. <laughs> especially with um, especially with more like generative AI models available now, like ChatGPT. Learning these new things will only get easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the help of uh, tools like ChatGPT. Yeah. So I also encourage anyone who's interested in doing computational work to look into that as yeah. well. Yeah,
1: okay. Like talk to chat GPT and ask how-to questions sort of? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: basically because it's essentially the new Google, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's really if, if we think about 30, 50 years ago, let's say when uh, computers first came out, like a lot of people... Were a lot of people were worried about how computers were going to take away their jobs, but computers only took away jobs from people who didn't learn how to use computers. So the same thing goes for ChatGPT. In the future, ChatGPT will take away jobs from people who didn't learn how to use ChatGPT.
1: Um, I have this big smile on my face right now because I, <laughs> when I was home recently, my I, my dad, he got himself in trouble using ChatGPT. Oh, no. What yeah. happened? He asked it to write a poem for my mom, <laughs> and
0: it apparently, it's so it,
1: funny. it apparently wrote a really, really good, mo- moving poem. And so he shared it with my mom, and it was pers- it asked for information, so it was all personalized. And she was so moved, she cried. And he didn't expect. He didn't expect this reaction or something. So he he said he was faced with this moral dilemma, <laughs> and he knew he could He had to say something.
0: <laughs> so, oh, like whether he should have told her. Well, no, it.
1: I mean, yeah, the moral dilemma is uh-huh. like, oh my gosh, you know, do I do I not say anything and allow uh-huh. her to to enjoy <laughs> this moment, right? Or do I take back the joy that I just provided, and right. th- which was the honest thing to do. Uh-huh. And um so yeah he did that he t- he took some flack for sure but okay. uh, it was a h- hilarious use of chat gpt <laughs> 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 It was a very uh, a very him thing to do sorry dad
0: That's hilarious uh, But if- at least at least he gave <laughs> all of her information to chat gpt so there's still some <laughs> <laughs> there's still effort <laughs> he,
1: he no i won't give him that nope i can't okay. <laughs> it was not he did it for me it was fun it was fun to play with chat gpt okay <laughs> um all, so all i have now is is there anything that you would like to add even if it's not just like some last note if there's something it, well now it's three forty-five. so just keep your time in mind but Anything you would like to add at the end here?
0: Well, I just want to say for current graduate students and also future graduate students, I just want to like, this is unsolicited (laughs) unsolicited advice, obviously, but just, I just want to emphasize on the importance of having a couple hobbies outside of school. That's just so important because grad school is a journey. You're going to face challenges along the way and um, those hobbies are gonna get you through and also having friends outside of school is also very very important Mm -hmm. just wanna just wanna say that again
1: friends are dope
0: yes they are
1: (laughs) (laughs) awesome dr Bo. thank you so much for for sitting down with me and i'm glad we finally got this done This is, uh, I'm looking forward to editing. This is going to be a good one.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. Seriously, I had a blast. Awesome. I love to hear that. Thank you. (laughs) I did too. Awesome.
1: And thank you everyone for listening to today's episode of the Polymer Science Podcast. If you have any questions for us or for Dr. Bo, please reach out at polymersciencepodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you and we'll see you next time.